We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug shares his message from our series, Operation 611, Trading in Your Swords. So we're in a season where we get to commemorate the single most important week in all of human history. From the triumphal entry through to Easter Sunday, more important things happened in these seven, eight days than have ever happened any time since. Human history was changed uh, forever because of what happened during this holy week. Uh, and so we got to already remember and commemorate the waving of the palm branches uh, today. And, and in a few days, we're going to talk about Good Friday uh, and the crucifixion. We're going we're to look at Easter and the resurrection. Uh, but there are a couple of other things that happened in between Palm Sunday and Good Friday that are really important for us uh, as we, we grapple with what, what really changed in history during this Holy Week. And so I want to look at that section uh, today. So a few days after the triumphal entry and a little bit before the crucifixion, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. And uh, we're going to look at this event that happened with Jesus and his closest followers. Uh, so this is the late Thursday night, the wee hours of Friday morning. They, they've just celebrated Passover together, and now they're out in the garden. Uh, and, uh, and this is what happened. So while Jesus was still speaking uh, in the garden, uh, Judas who had been one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, he arrived. And with him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And so then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once uh, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is our story for today, a historical moment that has big truths that, that matter for us even now 2,000 years later. And, and the first one is this, that that unnamed apostle, he's named in some of the other gospels. And so we know it was Simon Peter, like it always is. Simon Peter is the rash one of Jesus' apostles. He, he always leaps without looking, acts before he thinks. And in this moment, he's the one who pulls the sword out and tries to defend Jesus. And I hope you have a little bit of sympathy for Peter in this story today. I mean, he's doing what I think a lot of us hope that we would do as well in this moment. I mean, after all, Jesus is his Lord. Peter has followed him faithfully for three years. And now here comes this external threat. And Peter wants to do something about it. Uh, as we've been in this series, we're using kind of strategic battle language, uh, you know, the, the tactics, uh, having a strategy, a war plan. Uh, and I think we can probably, without too much effort, kind of 
put together what Peter thought his battle plan was. After all, uh, if Peter thinks he's a faithful soldier for Jesus, uh, it only makes sense that he's bringing some tactical thinking to this, right? So if you're Peter in this moment and you're, you're kind of assessing the situation, there's a threat. Jesus' life is at risk. People want to kill my Lord. Clear threat. We totally get it. And if that's the threat, well, then we know what tactics make the most sense. If someone's trying to kill someone you love, then well, we need to be brave and bold. We need to use violence uh, to make sure that Jesus is protected. Because after all, when we're confronted with the enemy, we know what we have to do. It's the Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, the, you know, all these people. Like, they are the ones trying to harm Jesus. They are the enemy. And, and so then what, ultimately, uh, what ultimate weapon does Peter have at his disposal? Well, he, he's got a sword. All of this should track. All of this is just common sense and reasonable. If you're trying to be a faithful follower of God, you're trying to be an active agent of God in the world, this is exactly how you would probably have assessed the situation as well. And yet what you see in the story is that Jesus completely rebukes everything that has gone on in this. Jesus doesn't treat his enemies like the enemy. In fact, the, another gospel tells us that he healed the ear of the guy that, that, that Peter cut it off. Uh, Jesus said, no, no, don't, don't fight back. Our tactics are not violence. And for sure, he says, don't use your sword. A sword is not the problem. And, and so even though everything Peter did makes sense and is reasonable, for some reason, Jesus is against all of it. He disagrees with all of this thinking. Partly because, uh, if you didn't know, Jesus actually warned Peter about all of this. Jesus was actually really clear in his instructions to Peter. Uh, a few weeks before uh, this Holy Week moment, a few weeks, uh, Jesus actually told his disciples what the battle plan was going to be. Uh, Jesus, he began to explain to disciples that here's what's going to have to happen. He must go to Jerusalem, and while he's there, he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the very people that showed up in the garden to arrest him, and that ultimately Jesus himself would be killed, but on the third day be raised to life. And sometimes we think that God is, is really enigmatic or mysterious with us. He doesn't tell us clearly what's going to happen. And yet look at this. Jesus could not have been clearer. There were not these mystical proverbs that people wouldn't understand until later. He very directly and straightforwardly said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be put to death, but it's all okay because I'm going to be raised again from the dead. God was so clear to his followers what was going to happen and what he wanted them to participate in. But notice Peter's response even a few weeks before this all went down. Peter pulls Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you, not on my watch. But then Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are now a stumbling block to me because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, even though Peter had been, been told so clearly what Jesus' strategy was, he, he couldn't fathom it. it. It didn't make sense to him. He, all he could think of is, no, I have to defend God. I have to fight for the faith. This is what I have to do. And, and Jesus has to directly tell him, that all sounds good. That sounds noble. That sounds righteous. That is not what God wants you to do. That's only what you want you to do. And we struggle with the same thing 2,000 years later, that, that, that if you are a good-hearted person, you want uh, to be faithful to God, you want to fight for the faith, you want to have an influence in the world, and yet we, just like Peter, almost always tend to default to the human concerns, the human strategies. We come up with our own battle plan in defiance 
of what Jesus is telling us very straightforwardly he wants us to do. And this is what our series, Operation 611, has been about. It's been about us really facing what God actually tells us to do, how he tells us to fight. Hopefully after a few weeks now, if you've been with us or if you've not, I'm gonna recap it. We understand that God changes our plan, right? The threat, the threat is, is real, that there is a waning influence of Christianity in our country right now. That, that's a real thing. We, we see it across the board. But the tactics, rather than the tactics that someone like Peter would default to that we do, the tactics that we, as we spent the next several weeks on, are righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There's nothing about, about violence or confidence or, or smarts uh, or boldness, any of this. The, the tactics are simply righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And the reason these are the tactics is because the enemy is not who we ever think the enemy is. The enemy's not other people. In fact, as Dion Garrett talked about last week, that the true enemy is our own cancerous sin, that, that this influence inside of us, that's what we've got to fight against and, and, and cut out of our bodies much like cancer. And if you didn't hear that last week, you should go back and listen to it. It, it was such an important message and we all need to hear it over and over and over again. The enemy is not other people. But if that's the case, if the enemy is ourselves, if we're not supposed to use swords, then, then what does that leave us with? If we want to be uh, fighters of the faith, you know, defenders of God and Jesus, what do we have as, as, our, as our tool of choice if Jesus is saying it's not a sword? So to understand that, to, to, to really be able to, to get this right, that's what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, I wanna talk about all the reasons why the sword doesn't work. The sword is not effective the way we think it would be. Uh, and the first thing I hope we all get at this point is, is we are long past the days of the Crusades uh, where the literal sword clearly did not work. That when, if Christians ever think that, that physically using weapons, uh, swords, knives, guns, that if we think violently forcing faith on someone uh, is the answer, we're, we're long past that and I don't think too many of us uh, are, are, are le legitimately thinking that's what we're called to do. So I think we all get that. But what I've observed is that we have a lot of forceful ways of trying to go, through, go about the world, trying to enforce God's truth on people, uh, trying to just be people that, that make an impact and a difference. We use the sword in a lot of metaphorical ways. And even though we don't physically try to harm anyone, we're all ultimately still swinging our swords in, in the very way that Jesus asked us not to do. And as I've thought about it, I, I kind of see three broad categories, ways that, that we as, as Christians, people who are just trying to follow God, we end up swinging our swords the same way Peter did all those years ago in the garden. And, and those three categories are, are through apologetics and debate, uh, through legislating morality, uh, and, and then ultimately for a lot of us, it's defending our rightness in, in, in moments of conflict and disagreement. And so I want to just unpack you know, all of these for you here for a minute, uh, that, that ultimately I think every one of these represent our attempt to, to use the sword um, in a metaphorical way to enforce our, uh, our, our opinion, our beliefs on others. And, and it ultimately uh, is in defiance of what Jesus has asked us to do, and it's also ultimately not going to accomplish anything that we would like to accomplish with our lives. And so the first one is this idea of apologetics. And if you don't know that word, that basically means arguing about the faith and, and arguing people into a right understanding of the faith. And, and for me, as someone who was raised in Christianity, who's been a leader uh, in, in churches and, and Christian organizations for a long time, this was the main thing we were told to do. This was the way that, that we were gonna make our impact in the world was we were gonna be the best arguers and we were going to have all of the best books and we we're going to have thought through all of the scientific debates 
We were going to be able to prove why all the atheists and the scientists, and they were wrong and, and, and right beliefs about creation or this or that. And this was the method. This is how we were mobilized as a church. It was, we've got we've to learn all of these things so that we can argue the rightness of the faith to the world. And what I've come to recognize after a long time is that was ultimately a misapplication of the, the tactics and the strategy Jesus wanted us to have. That's a manifestation of the sword. Because ultimately what you're trying to say to someone is, is, that, is that you are so wrong, I am so right, and I'm going to oppose you, I'm gonna come against you in the force of my superior arguments. I grew up in a house where, where we had 20 copies uh, of the book, The Case for Christ at all times, so that my parents could hand them out to people to prove that Jesus was the way, the right way. But ultimately recognize that it is an aggressive, hostile way to do things. It's undermining someone else's position. It's not granting dignity or respect to another person. It's saying that you're wrong and you're wrong because you don't have access to the superior arguments that I have. And ultimately it is a forceful, hostile way to engage with the world. And not only that, it doesn't do any good. I spent so many years fighting with this particular sword, just me personally. It doesn't bring anyone to faith. It doesn't soften hearts, and it certainly doesn't restore relationships. It ends and alienates relationships. It severs people, just like a literal sword severs. And yet this is a thing that we're tempted to do. Or or even so much of the debate in our country the last few decades has been, how do we legislate morality? And, And that's a really dicey proposition. Uh, I hope we can all at least agree that that is incredibly complex. There's a ton of gray area about what you legislate and what you don't, how you try to enforce morality on other people unwillingly. Like, it's, a really, um, it's a really dangerous place to be. But what I'll say to you for, for today is, is this, is that there are very few people that are even asked biblically to do that. And, and that's people that have been given governmental authority and positions of power. That's who gets to swing that sword. So if you're a, you're a senator, a congressperson, a judge, a police officer, a president, those are people that, that have been given vocationally by God uh, some power of the sword and they wield it uh, in appropriate ways. If you are not one of those people, if you don't have that role in your life, then, then if you're at all trying to enforce or legislate morality through, through coercive power, we're swinging the sword the way Jesus asked us not to. But since most of us aren't in that position, I don't think we have to worry about that one as much. It's the third one, guys. The third one is where I see so much damage done. It's the third one where I've done the most damage in my own relationships because I don't even recognize it as swinging the sword. It's taken a lot of years of conflict and frustration and pain before I finally figured out what was happening. You see, this is it, is that I think when we have conflict, we think conflicts are about who's right or who's wrong. And if you can just have an interaction about that, then one person's gonna admit that they're wrong, one person's gonna be confident that they're right, and then you'll move on because the rightness will have been established. And yet what I have learned is that is never true. That all of our conflicts and our arguments, we think they're about right and wrong, they're actually about something much deeper, and it's because we think they're about right and wrong that we feel justified in wielding the sword. That we are enforcing our rightness on someone else. Even if we never actually throw a punch or do anything physically violent, that there is a hostility and an aggression in saying, my rightness trumps your wrongness. And it's ultimately an act of sword swinging when we reduce our arguments to this. Let me give you one example. I've made it, picked kind of a silly one because I hope that'll help you engage with me. But understand, this is true of all of our conflicts in my opinion. 
So here's the example. I've been married for 15 years uh, at this point, and for 14 years and 11 months, we have been having one particular debate, uh, which is this, that there is a right way and a wrong way to load the dishwasher. And then let's make this point. It's objectively true. There is a right way to load the dishwasher and a wrong way because one way, when the dishwasher load is done, all of the dishes are clean. That's how you know you did it right. And there is a wrong way, and you know it's wrong, because when the load is done and you pull things out, they're still uh, encrusted and caked with all matter of nonsense on them. And that's how you know you loaded it wrong. You didn't rinse it well enough. You should have soaked it. You you put the plate in upside down so it never got sprayed. You you loaded the dishwasher wrong. And and so throughout our marriage, my wife and I, we have been having this debate over and over again. And, and, And on the surface, it looks like it's about a right or a wrong thing because it's objectively clear that there's a better way to load a dishwasher. And yet what I've had to learn, it's taken me longer than it should have, a decade and a half to understand it's not actually about the dishwasher. And if I think it's about the right or wrongness of how to load the dishwasher, that I'm, I'm missing what's really going on. And I am in fact uh, acting with, with violence towards my wife in this moment. Even though I, I haven't done anything physically violent to her, because we've reduced it to this right or wrong, I, I'm now trying to impose my will. And what we need to do is understand that, that, that any of our conflict, any of our interactions, they're not about a right or wrong. They're about what's going on inside of us because it's the thing that's going on inside of me that dictates whether I come out forcefully and with aggression, whether I'm swinging a sword or whether I'm actually trying to solve a problem. Let me explain. See, for me, the the rightness or wrongness of a dishwasher, it's not really about that for me. It's, It's that I know the definition of insanity. Insanity is when you do the same thing over and over again and yet expect different results, right? You guys have heard that definition of insanity. And so the third or fourth time that I pull a peanut butter encrusted coffee mug out of the dishwasher, I start to think, did I marry an insane person? (laughs) It's a legit fear. And not only that, it has implications for me in my life. I've learned that for me, the dishwasher has become this kind of symbol of our ability as a family and as a married partnership to recognize the difficulties of the world, to adapt to them and to make changes in our behavior so that we can be competent, capable people in the world. And every time a dish comes out of that dishwasher and it's all junky and messed up, I immediately catastrophize it and think, how are we ever gonna be competent people if we can't figure out a dishwasher? It's the fear, right? And and so then what I do is I I go and I swing my sword and and I grab that coffee cup and I go, Lucy, you got some splaining to do and I I hold it up, right? And and, and I think it's about just this objective right or wrong, but what what I'm realizing is I'm actually trying to to coerce her to understand that that this dishwasher, it has bigger things going on and I don't even recognize them half the time. And so I I think it's just about this right or wrong thing, but really it's my enforcing my rightness on her as a way of protecting myself. And from her side, the same thing is going on. You know, part of my frustration has been, we've talked about this so many times, why doesn't anything change? And her answer to that is, if the dishwasher matters so much to you, Doug, why have you never done a load yourself in 15 years? She's right, I'm right? Yeah, yeah okay. That, she's not that right. It's a little right. We don't need applause for that. But no, she's right. 
She's right. And, and not only that, there's something deeper going on there too, right? Because now it's this question of, of does Doug, does he respect the work that I do? Does he just take for granted all of the labor I do all day long to make sure that we have a functioning family system and organization? The fact that, that he feels the right to, to nitpick and criticize the acts of love that I do for him, that, that seems to prove that there's some disrespect uh, and taking me for granted. And, and she's not wrong either. You see, even something as simple as a, as a dishwasher, it's about so many more powerful things. And when we think we're just debating an objective rightness, what we're really doing is we're swinging our swords, defending our deepest fears, defending our wounds. And I've come to see every bit of conflict in my life this way. And not only that, as I, as I counsel other people, as I'm a pastor who gets glimpses into people's lives, over and over again, this is what I see, that people think it's about the right or wrong of a thing. What it's really about is someone is scared Someone is worried, someone has a wound, and they are going to swing a sword to protect themselves from others. In fact, this is why now, just so you guys know, honestly, when I see preachers especially get really fired up about a topic, about a theology, when I see people really debating things uh, with with a lot of confidence and aggression, I start to look at this, and I start to say, why are you swinging your sword so hard? And what I've come to, to discern, honestly, is that when people really debate the faith, it's because deep down inside, they've got a doubt themselves that they're really struggling with. And they think they're arguing against the unbeliever. They're arguing against that different group of Christians. And, and what, what, I've, I, what I start to notice is actually they're trying to prove something deep down inside to themselves. That there's a fear and a wound that they're worried that maybe they believe the wrong thing. But if they can just be, be forceful enough in their arguments, it'll, it'll calm and it'll soothe those doubts inside. Because more and more, the, the, the people I observe that are true, confident believers, people that, that know God and that know him powerfully, they're the calmest. They don't need to have fiery debates. They don't need to get into big arguments with people because there is a serenity and a trust that deep down inside, God's got this. You see, ultimately, that's what I think makes this story so important for you and me today is recognize what Peter did. Peter thought that Jesus was weak. Peter thought that that, that he was going to get conquered because Jesus was not strong enough to defend himself. The, the, The Lord of heaven and earth, the king of all creation that we sing Hosanna to, Peter looks at him and says, I don't think he's got this. And so Peter jumps into action, pulls his sword because he thinks he's got to defend God. I think we think that all the time too, but, but deep down, if there's this fear that we have to defend God, then, then we're believing in a weak God. The fear in us is, is, that, is that maybe God isn't true or right, and maybe we don't have a real grasp on him, and that's what's driving so much of the sword swinging that we do in the name of Jesus, just like Peter tried to do in the name of Jesus all those years ago in the garden. But notice Notice again the very uh, clear, straightforward, no ambiguity command that Jesus gave to Peter and that he gives to you and me today. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to Peter, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And I'll tell you, uh, this is so obviously true in a literal way that that's how I've always taken it, right? If, if, you're, a, if you're a hostile, violent person, if, if you think swords or knives or guns are the, are the way to solve your problems, then yeah, one day you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite you uh, back and, and you're going to be in trouble by, by this. But what, what I've come to think, realize is Jesus means more than just a literal thing here. He doesn't just mean if you're a violent person who tries to enforce your will violently with, with guns and swords, you're going you're gonna to die violently. What he means is, If this is your outlook, 
then all of your relationships are going to be marked by hostility and power dynamics. If we live by the, the sword, that, that what it means is all, we don't, we're not going to have loving, mutually building up relationships. We're going to have hostile relationships where we're at, at odds with each other. We're adversaries. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. And that this becomes an incredibly hostile, angry, and ultimately lonely way to live. And it'll end up being the way that we end up dying as well. See, this is, I hope I've made it as clear as I can. I'm just trying to echo the words of Jesus because he is so straightforward on this topic. The sword is not our weapon. And even when we are called to be ambassadors of God's kingdom, even when we've been given marching orders and a battle plan, as Dion Garrett said last week, we do not wage war the way the world does. We don't use swords and guns uh, to affect the kingdom of God to bring about change and transformation in the world. And so what is it that we use? If the sword is ineffective, if the sword violates the clear command of Jesus, what is our power, our weapon, our tool instead? Well, Paul summarizes it really nicely in his letter to the Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. What do we trade our swords in for? We trade them in for the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now gospel, it's a loaded word and people mean a lot of different things by it. So for for the sake of today and for the sake of this point, let's maybe just focus on this kind of simple definition. That the gospel is a love that willingly bears the painful cost for the sake of the other person. Gospel at its most stripped down level is a love that willingly bears the cost of pain for the sake of the other person. And, And this is what Jesus did. This is the gospel that you saw even in our story today from Holy Week between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Jesus could have had 12 legions of angels fight back. He could have had every one of those guards and soldiers struck dead on the spot. Jesus laid down his sword. He didn't even need a sword. He he has fireballs and earthquakes and floods. He can just smite bigger than any sword. He laid it down and in love, he bore the cost of what they inflicted upon him. He willingly let them hurt him so that he could lovingly save them. The very people that we would look at and say they were his enemies. The high priest's servant, he puts his ear back on because they are not his enemies. Jesus would rather than using the sword that he and only he has the right to use, he lays his own sword down and in the name of the gospel, in love, he lets them hurt him so that he can ultimately work for their good. He bears the cost and the pain for their sakes, and he bears it for yours and mine. See, this is the gospel picture of this holy week, that God himself, who could have smited all of us, who who had every right to say that we were wrong, and he was right, and he was objectively uh, the, the holy, right, perfect one, God himself laid down his sword And he let himself be put to death so that you and I could have lives of salvation. So that we could have meaning and purpose and abundance in our life here on earth. So that we could have a life that transcended death itself. That is the gospel. And that is the power that you and I have available to us now. 
What are we trading in our swords for? We're trading them in for the gospel because a sword can only kill or hurt or maim. The gospel brings life. And you and I, we, we get to wield it. As we engage with Operation 611, as, as we walk forward confident in the battle plans that God has given us, this is the weapon that you and I have been entrusted and in fact commanded to use. We get to use it. Here's how it looks, right? So when, when I open the dishwasher and, and I find peanut butter all over the top rack, right? In that moment, I'm tempted to offload all of my fear, all, all of the panic and anxiety that induces in me, and I'm tempted to offload it onto my spouse and to make her carry it. But what if instead I bear the cost of that pain? I say, you know what? This is bringing up some fears. This is bringing up some anxiety. This is a trigger clearly. And I can just keep it. I can just keep it. Keep it to myself. Let it be on my shoulders out of love for my wife and all the work that she does for me and for our family. Or if it's truly that big of a deal for me, yes, I should probably just become the main dishwasher loader in the family. That would be another way to bear the cost of the pain, right? No one likes doing it. We all hate loading the dishwasher, so fine. I'll bear the cost so that I can be uh, this thing that, that doesn't come between us, this way that I'm not swinging the sword at my wife. And you and I, every one of us, we, we face these decisions all day long, every day. Opportunities where we have a wound, we have a fear, we have a concern, and, and we are tempted to offload it onto the other person in the name of rightness. And we could instead of wielding that sword, we could wield the gospel. We could choose to bear the burden of pain ourselves for the love and the good of the other person. Well, let me give you one really concrete example of this, one that's been really helpful to me. Uh, this is a movie I saw a few years ago, and it has one of the best pictures of the gospel that I've ever seen. Uh, it's called Crazy Rich Asians. It's really good. Uh, and, and if you haven't seen it, let me just break down what, what's going on, is that there's a young woman named Rachel, and she's in love with a man named Nick, but Nick is the heir of an incredibly wealthy family. And Nick's mother, Eleanor, has made it clear that she disapproves of Rachel. And in fact, that if Nick marries Rachel, Eleanor will disown him. He'll be shunned from his family forever. He'll be cut off from all the wealth, all of the inheritance. That is how strongly Nick's mother, Eleanor, feels about it. And again, notice which power she's using. And this is a woman who loves her son. She's not doing it out of hate. She loves her son. She's wielding the power of the sword against her own son. She's saying, this matters so much to me that I will cut you off to make sure that you make the right decision. And in this scene, Rachel has asked for a meeting with Eleanor, and the two of them have a conversation over a game of mahjong. Uh, and in case you don't know the rules of that, the game, here's the one thing you need to understand uh, for understanding the scene, uh, is that Rachel is going to get a tile partway through, and it's gonna look like two Ms. It's gonna look like an M and then an upside down M. And, and just know this, that by having that tile, Rachel can choose to win the game in that moment, or if she, if she keeps it, she wins the game, or if she discards that tile, she loses the game. Just know that that's the strategy that's going on there, and now watch this scene with me from Crazy Rich Asians. I know Nick told you the truth about my mom, but you didn't like me the second I got here. Why is that? There is a Hokkien phrase, Gagilang. It means our own kind of people. And you're not our own kind. Because I'm not rich? Because I didn't go to a British boarding school or I wasn't born into a wealthy family? 
you're a foreigner, American, and all Americans think about is their own happiness. Don't you want Nick to be happy? It's an illusion. We understand how to build things that last. Something you know nothing about. You don't know me. I know you're not what Nick needs. Well, he proposed to me yesterday. He said he'd walk away from his family and from you for good. Don't worry, I turned him down. Only a fool falls for winning hand. There's no winning. You made sure of that. Because if Nick chose me, he would lose his family. And if he chose his family, he might spend the rest of his life resenting you. you chose for him. I'm not leaving because I'm scared. Or because I think I'm not enough. Because maybe for the first time in my life, I know I am. I just love Nick so much. I don't want him to lose his mom again. So I just wanted you to know that one day, when he marries another lucky girl who is enough for you, and you're playing with your grandkids while the tanhuas are blooming and the birds are chirping, that it was because of me. A poor, raised by a single mother, low-class immigrant. Nobody. Understand the dynamics of that moment. Rachel had the power of the sword. Nick had chosen her. He was willing to reject his family, reject his wealth. She wins. And yet she chose to lay down her sword because she understood that there was something even greater that was going on there, that she would win at the cost of severing at the cost of cutting someone off from his family. And so she willingly laid down her sword and she put the cost on herself. She picked up the heartbreak of walking away from a man that she loved because that was the only way she was able to, to make sure that he lived a healthy whole life. This is the gospel picture. And as you might've heard Eleanor say in the middle of that scene, only a fool folds a winning hand. This is what you and I have to grapple with because the world will never understand it. It looks foolish 
for a God who could command armies of angels to wipe everyone out, it looks foolish for him to fold a winning hand and be willingly led to a cross. It's foolish for Rachel to have the winning tile and to discard it and let, and let Eleanor win because it's the only way she knows to, to love the man that she cares about so deeply, have a whole life. And it's going to often look foolish to ourselves and to others to willingly lay down a sword, to take our superior position, to take our rightness, to defend ourselves to the hilt, to lay it down for the sake of bearing the pain ourselves. And the fear is that if we do it, we're going to lose. The fear is if we take the pain on ourselves, then we're choosing a life of pain and no redemption. But the promise of God, the gospel power of God himself, is that when we trade in our swords for the gospel, when, when we bear pain for the sake of our loved ones, we redeem them and ourselves. We don't force someone into life or death. We, we claim life for both parties and we ultimately become difference makers. We transform the world. And as we live out all of the truths of Operation 611, uh, as we faithfully follow God and his strategic marching orders, let this be the last thing that our weapon is and only is the gospel. The love we have that empowers us to bear the pain and the cost for the sake of the good of others around us. This is the weapon that Jesus commands you and I to use. This is the weapon that makes a difference in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are, you are beyond fathoming. Your wisdom is deeper than our wisdom. Your understanding is so great. You could have struck us down. You are always right and we are always wrong and you could have enforced your power upon us. You could have, have smited us and no one could have told you that you were wrong and yet you chose to lay down your sword. You chose to let your son be crucified and killed and you did it all because you are willing to bear the pain so that we can have all of the good in life that you desire for us. So Lord God, help every person here have the confidence of knowing that we are loved by you, loved so much that no pain was too great compared to the value you place on every one of our hearts. And Lord, empower us. Let us be wielders, not of the sword. Let us be wielders of the gospel, bringing life to all that we meet and letting the gospel transform all of our conflict, all of our struggles all of our interactions with the world. We pray this trusting in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, hit that subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.